This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. And you can find us on frequency 15235 kHz, that is on the 31 meter band if you're in West Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumelele Zondi with Onel Nzinti, Usane Matabula and Neto Chamane. Hit of stories. South Africa celebrates Human Rights Day. The World Meteorological Organization issues annual statement on the state of the global climate. In economics, Kenya to start selling a mobile phone-based government bond this week. And in sports, newly elected KEF president steps down as vice president of the Madagascar Senate. But first, the news with Onel. Thank you, Spoo. A gunman has killed 17 people, mostly women and children, after invading a farming community in central Nigeria. The latest violence linked to grazing rights disputes. Police say the attack at a market in Zaki Biyam left 17 dead and over 10 injured. President Muhammadu Buhari, a northern Muslim, has proposed the creation of grazing land to prevent further clashes in a country that is battling an eight-year Boko Haram insurgency in the northeast. The authorities in Nairobi have announced that 500 Tanzanian medical doctors are to arrive in Kenya at the beginning of next month to work in the country's hospitals. The announcement comes shortly after more than 5,000 Kenyan doctors ended their three-month strike to push for pay rise to be on a par with salaries paid to doctors in Ghana and South Africa. President Uhuru Kenyatta spokesman Manoa Esipisu. Tanzania agreed to send us 500 doctors whose skill set has been determined by the national government and the Council of Governors. So the doctors from Tanzania will be issued with work permits and limited to working to a hospital or hospitals that they have been assigned to. They will give their full attention to patients in public hospitals across the country. They will not be involved in private practice as their local counterparts People in the Democratic Republic of Congo are calling on the UN Security Council to renew the mandate of the UN peacekeeping mission MONUSCO in the country. MONUSCO has been in the DRC since more than 15 years and two weeks ago, but Congolese authorities have called for an evaluation of the current one-year mandate before the renewal. General Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, She Okitundu, called on the UN Security Council to make sure the expiring mandate is evaluated before a new resolution giving another one year to the peacekeeping mission. But most of people here believe more new score has to be given a new mandate since there is no sustainable peace yet in the country. The security situation is not yet good since there are new areas of insecurity that have been identified. This makes it difficult for the UN Security Council to allow MONUSCO pulling out while its priority remains the protection of civilians. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has paid tribute to South Africa's liberation fighters who fought for the freedom of the country. This year is the 40th anniversary of the death of Steve Biko's. President Jacob Zuma says the country honors and celebrates his life. 
The year 2017 is also the 40th anniversary of the brutal murder of black consciousness leader and liberation struggle icon, Mr. Bantu Steve Bigo. This sports ground is a historic venue where his emotionally charged funeral was held. We honor him today on Human Rights Day. We joined Mrs. Nonsigele Lobigo. And lastly, Ghanaian authorities have closed the popular tourist destination Kintampo Falls after 20 people died in a tree fall tragedy. A group of high school and university students were swimming on Sunday afternoon at the Picture Square waterfalls in the Brong Ahafo region when a massive tree crashed into the water, crushing some of some to death and injuring some. The ministry has called on the tourism authority to embark on a comprehensive safety audit of all major tourist attractions in the country. For Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Seven zero five Central African Time. Thank you very much, Onele, for that update. Now, South Africa needs liberated minds to achieve radical economic transformation and something that late black consciousness movement leader Steve Bandubigo would have been proud of. That's according to President Jacob Zuma at the 2017 Human Rights Day commemoration in King Williamstown. Government used this year's Human Rights Day to honor Bigo by unveiling grave sites and memorial as a national heritage site. That is his grave site and a memorial as a national heritage site. Debo Mukobo reports. The 2017 commemorations of Human Rights Day was held under the theme The Year of Oar Tambo, Unity in Action in Advancing Human Rights. This day originates from the tragic 21 March 1960 Sharville Massacre where 69 people were killed by the apartheid police during a peaceful protest. And the highlight of this year's commemoration was the celebration of Biko's life. And President Jacob Zuma unveiled his gravesite in the graveyard where he is buried as a national heritage site in celebration of the contribution he made to liberate all South Africans. The president says Biko's philosophy of black consciousness is more relevant today as the country ends for economic freedom. In the memory of Steve Bigo, let us promote the emancipation of the mind. He wanted black people to understand that they are equals with other racial groups and that they were equally deserving of dignity, respect, equality and a better life. He believed that only when black people understood that they were not inferior, and the white people understood and accepted that they are not superior, would true liberation be achieved in our country. Our country indeed needs liberated mind in order to achieve radical economic transformation. He said Biko stood for the unity of black people, insisting that South Africans have to come together to celebrate their heroes. In September, the month of his tragic death, we will join the family, Azapo, and Black Consciousness Movement in commemorating his life and contribution. Indeed, this is the year of deepening unity. We must come together to celebrate our national heroes 
and ensure that our youth and future generations know and understand their contribution and what they stood for. And the Biko family thank government for recognizing their loved one. His widow, Tsikelelo Biko, says the Biko monument will teach young people about the history of their country. This monument here is going to make the kids learn more about how we got this freedom. Because it hasn't been an easy way of getting the freedom. People have lost their lives. But I always say when people ask me, how do I feel on days like this? I always tell them that I think days of crying are gone. Now we must just focus on continuing with his letters. The president also used the occasion to urge South Africans to recommit themselves to the advancement of human rights and the improvement of the living conditions of the poor. Today, we also recommit ourselves to advance fundamental human rights and the restoration of human dignity to the black people in particular who were brutalized and dehumanized by the twin systems of colonialism and apartheid. We are pleased with the progress we have made thus far in advancing human rights our country's constitution enshrines socio-economic rights such as health, education, food, water, and social security. We have made progress in these areas. The main Human Rights Day commemoration was also attended by Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa and Eastern Cape Premier Pumulo Maswale. I am Tebumokobo King Williamstown in the Eastern Cape. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has led the National Commemoration of Human Rights Day observed today. On this day, South Africans remember the victims of the 1960 Sharpville massacre where police shot dead 69 people during a protest against the country's past laws, which were used to control the movement of blacks, coloreds and Indians. The main event took place in King Williamstown in the Eastern Cape. The highlights of the celebrations this year include honoring a black consciousness leader, Steve Beagle, 40 years after he was murdered by apartheid police. Dewa Mavinga is the Southern Africa Director for Human Rights Watch and he says South Africa has a vibrant and diverse media. I think what is important is that certainly there are issues and when you look at um, media freedoms or freedom of expression, these are rights that have to be enjoyed in relation to you know, the rights of others. So there is a point in terms of the need for factual reporting or for responsible reporting by the media. But this is not and should not be an excuse to mother the press. So certainly there must be guidelines, because when you talk of um, media freedoms, you are also talking of individual freedoms and right to privacy. So there is need to approach these freedoms within a framework of the law and not to use this current wave of uh, fake news as an excuse to clamp down on the media or to prevent the media from investigating and reporting because a lively and robust media is also key to development, to exposing corruption and to strengthening the rule of law. It is a key pillar of any democratic state. So we need that and in South Africa we have a vibrant and diverse media. But also you need to look at um, the need to promote and strengthen community voices directly. Because also when you talk of media, you're also talking about ownership. 
of the media and how views are propagated and controlled. So there is need to ensure that communities and citizens, ordinary citizens, have an active role in terms of putting out their views freely without fear and without undue interference from the state. And so far, historically, South Africa has had a legacy of that kind of openness. But going forward, going forward, it is important to jealously guard fundamental media freedoms and ensure that there is no encroachment. Now, also, South Africa continues to play an important role in advancing the rights of lesbian, gays, bisexual, transgender and intersex LGBTI people. It was the first country to protect sexually in its constitution and it's reckoned to be a champion of gay rights. Yet in June 2016, it refused to support a resolution on LGBTI rights at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. What happened there? What was the reason? Well, we have had you know, concerns as the human rights community about the consistency or lack of it by South Africa in terms of placing human rights at the center of its foreign policy agenda particularly with regards to its voting pattern at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. And the example that we have raised is one case in point on the rights of the LGBTI people. And we believe that in that instance there was a step back from what former President Nelson Mandela had said that human rights will be the light that guides South Africa's foreign policy agenda. And here it seemed that within the same government of South Africa, Different, you know, groups had different positions, and this is what led to that um, counterproductive and anti-human rights position to oppose LGBTI rights. But we understand that um, later on the government position was reversed, and there was an endorsement of the rights of the LGBTI commitment, and that in this particular instance, South Africa had also pushed for a broader conceptualization of the definition of family within the UN human rights community, but because it had failed and there had been what were called political considerations, the South African vote was anti-LGBTI community. But I want also to say that quite positively, in September last year, the Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba then barred the homophobic pastor from the U.S., I think it was Pastor Stevenson, from entering South Africa on the grounds that his presence in South Africa would lead to violations of the rights of the LGBTI community and that would amount to hate speech and South Africa promotes and supports the rights of the LGBTI community. So that was a very positive move. But what is now needed is for the South African authorities to be consistent in their support for human rights and not blow hot and cold at different times. That is Adela Mavinga, who is the Southern Africa Director for Human Rights Watch, talking to Jose Khotengake. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Zimbabwe's President Robin Mugabe says Africa's inhibitions to interact and freely trade with each other are impeding the continent's growth. He says the consequences of this are that Africa will not develop intra-trade within its regions. Mugabe was speaking at the African Economic Platform in Mauritius. He is amongst a few heads of states attending the gathering of leaders, captains of industry and academics in Port Louis to reflect on how to accelerate the continent's economic transformation through collaboration. Channel Africa's Ndlandla Matlangu. The African Economic Platform is a brainchild of the African Union seeking to provide a platform for discussions between African heads of government, captains of the industry and academia on the future of the continent. It was launched at the 27th African Union Summit in Kigali, Rwanda last year and seeks to mobilize alternative resources to achieve the Continental Development Blueprint Agenda 2063. Several heads of state and government, including Zimbabwe, Tanzania and Swaziland, are attending the conference. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe addressed delegates on the first day of the gathering. Our inhibitions to interact with each other, freely trade with each other, have been firstly the fact that we think in some cases that cooperating with outsiders is more beneficial than cooperating with each other. Trading with each other is avoided and avoided originally within the region and the consequences are that we don't develop inter-trade within our regions. No, we still want country by country to trade, perhaps with Britain, with America, and so on. That's inhibiting our trade. He says Africa still has a lot of barriers. In regard to our products and trading with each other, the barriers, boundary barriers, mobility, even of labor. When uh, the Rome Act that established the EEC was established, it took only about three years after establishment, that it agreed on the mobility of labor, mobility of companies, and so on. No, we haven't got to that yet. We still have barriers at our borders. We are trying to eliminate these uh, in SADC, and uh, we are trying also to invite investment, establish 
Today's agenda will focus on the role of the private sector in generating investment, promoting industrialization, and strengthening intra-African trade, amongst others. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Glanda Masangu in Mauritius. The women who feed the African continent are thirsty for change and aspiring for a better future. That is according to a senior gender officer with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Program. Thakondiaye says her agency is helping to empower Africa's women agricultural workers, for example, by providing them with labor-saving technologies, climate-smart farming techniques, and the tools to get their goods to the market. Ms. Ndiaye, who is based at FAO's regional office in Ghana, is in New York for the latest session of the Commission on the Status of Women, which runs through to Friday. She told Diane Penn why enforcing gender equality and women's empowerment is a smart shortcut for sustainable development in Africa. Women in Africa feed the people. They are the predominant labor providers in agriculture. They are also the the labor providers in agro-industries. They feed the families in the house, so they are also nutrition caregivers. So really their role is prominent, but their aspirations have been a little bit neglected in the way that their access to key productive resources such as land is still very low. When we talk about access, it's more the notion of ownership. Their access to technologies is still very low. We are still doing agriculture like in the last centuries, and that's not how we can get the sector to reach its full productive potential. There's also an issue with access to decent employment, decent wage employment. Wherever you see that women and men perform the same job, it's most likely that it's not equal pay for equal work. Why are there so many barriers? There are many issues. Some of it is related to culture. Because of the way land is inherited, for instance, there's always male preference. The land is, in most cases, given to the male heir of the family. And that is pretty much based on the assumption that Land given to women is lost to another family because she may get married and leave her family of origin. And it trickles down. If you don't have land ownership, you don't have a land title, it's a lot more difficult for you to get credit from a commercial bank. Credit at the level where you can transform your activity, upscale it, and access more markets. And now, what does that empowerment look like for a woman farmer? You know, women, I think, are thirsty for change. They're really dreaming of better future. They're aspiring for a better future where 
they have access to the key productive resources. And for instance, from FAO, we have a number of projects and programs in the region. Just to give you an example, uh, in the Gambia, we talk to women uh, in the livestock sector, and they're mostly in poultry. And what they said is their businesses cannot succeed because the poultry feed is imported and it's far too expensive. So through the African Solidarity Trust Fund, FAO is now implementing a project with the government of Gambia to empower women in poultry feed production so that they don't have to import it anymore. Uh, we have other examples of introducing uh, new technologies that are climate smart, that are productivity enhancing, and that are labor saving for women. And one illustration of that is what we call the FTT. It's a fish smoking technology which allows to ensure food safety because then all those uh, smoke that create cancer, cancer elements into the fish are minimized. Uh, the women don't be at risk of inhaling all this indoor uh, air pollution, which is very detrimental to their health. Uh, they can smoke more fish in one time, so it's labor-saving. They can also market their products better. So that is another example of what is FAO we do. That technology actually is very popular. Nowadays, it's been introduced in about uh, over 10 African countries. Does FAO have any specific recommendations for governments? Yes, I would like to say that enforcing gender equality and women's empowerment is a very smart shortcut for sustainable development in Africa. I would like to say to our governments to move beyond the commitments to the actions. Action through ensuring financial inclusion of women in agriculture and in agricultural value chains. Action through strengthening rural institutions, the cooperatives, women cooperatives, the uh, producer organizations, the unions, so that they can access certain markets. We know, for instance, that government invests a lot in public procurement. And there are countries such as Kenya, which have been very creative in uh, adopting a directive that secures a quota for women in public procurement. Because the country found that 70% of their budget goes into public procurement. I would like to uh, tell our governments to also invest in social protection of women farmers. Financial inclusion, it's not just about the small microcredits. Women need transformative credit to grow strong businesses. They need insurance services. So when we talk about financial inclusion, it's a whole range of financial services that women need to grow their businesses. They need to enforce the land rights. In most of our countries, you still have this dual system whereby you have the customary laws and you have the... Uh, the legal rights of women, and they clash. So I think there are also countries that are very creative, such as Ethiopia, Rwanda, that have come up with this system of joint land titling, so that if the land belongs to the man, it belongs to the woman. So I think we should also be able to move towards that. 
Tago Ndiaye is a senior agenda officer with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Program in Ghana, talking to UN Radio's DN Pen in New York. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10:45 a.m. Central African time, and on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
You are listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pomela Lezondi. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. That is Channel Africa One on Twitter. Authorities in Nairobi have announced that 500 Tanzanian medical doctors are to arrive in Kenya at the beginning of next month to work in the country's hospitals. Authorities also announced that Cuban medical doctors are to work in Kenya. However, authorities are yet to announce the precise number of the Cubans and the date of their arrival in the country. The announcement comes shortly after more than 5,000 Kenyan doctors ended their three-month strike to push for pay rises so they earn as much as doctors in Ghana and South Africa. James Shimanyula reports. The arrival in Kenya next month of 500 Tanzanian medical doctors was announced at a press conference in the capital Nairobi by Manawa Espiso, President Uhuru Kenyatta's spokesman. Tanzania agreed to send us 500 doctors whose skill set has been determined by the national government and the Council of Governors. So the doctors from Tanzania will be issued with work permits and limited to working to a hospital or hospitals that they have been assigned to. They will give their full attention to patients in public hospitals across the country. They will not be involved in private practice as their local counterparts. President Uhuru Kenyatta's spokesman Emanoa Espiso touched on the issue of salaries to be paid to the Tanzanian doctors. The doctors will be paid at par according to their experience and skills with the package that the government has offered to Kenyan intern doctors and medical officers and on a contract basis. They are not being paid anything more. The fact that Tanzanian doctors have no access to mortgages or car loan packages or pension, which is offered under Kenya's public service scheme, means that they will come in at a cost-effective and a sustainable basis. Presidential spokesman Emanuel Espiso asserted that Tanzanian medical doctors are on the same level of medical experience with their counterparts in the East African region and beyond, dismissing rumored reports that the Tanzanian doctors are not highly experienced. It must be noted, and contrary to misinformed opinion in some quarters, that the curricula in East African medical schools has been rationalized, harmonized, and uh, in, in a sense standardized. And a doctor qualifying in any East African country can work in another without any further examination or any further exam. It also must be noted that Kenyans work across the country, across the country, across the region, across Africa, and probably, I would say, across the world. So in our region, in Rwanda, in Uganda, in Tanzania, in Burundi, South Sudan, in Ethiopia, in Somalia, or even in Eritrea, you'll find Kenyans. And that these nationals of other countries can also expect to work in our country without hurdles being put in, our, in their way uh, to the extent that they meet this obligation within the requirements of our law, this is totally in place. Manoa Espiso, spokesman for Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. To sum up, here are important points to be borne in mind. For the first time in Kenya's history, Tanzanian doctors are at work in the country. They will sign a two-year renewable contract with the Kenyan government. According to the government, the Tanzanian medical doctors 
are to be paid 200 United States dollars per day. Their arrival in Kenya next month follows the end of a three-month strike by Kenyan doctors. The doctors have signed a new agreement with the government, the very agreement that will enable the Nairobi administration to increase their salaries in faces. The government had offered a 40% pay hike, but the doctors' union leaders rejected it. They maintained that they were pushing for a 300% salary rise from their current monthly pay of 1,350 U.S. dollars. Kenya has 1,400 jobless qualified doctors awaiting employment. Kenyan doctors are employed directly from college. It may also be important to point out that the Kenyan doctors have been pegging their steep pay rise on hefty salary scales for their counterparts in Ghana and South Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The World Meteorological Organization has issued its annual statement on the state of the global climate ahead of the World Meteorological Day on the 23rd of March. Claire Nallis, Press Officer of Communications and Public Affairs, says the year 2016 made history with a record global temperature, exceptionally low sea ice and unabated sea level rises and ocean heat, with extreme weather and climate conditions having continued into 2017. The World Meteorological Organization has published its annual report on the state of the climate. In that report, we say that 2016 really was an extreme year in climate terms. It was the hottest year on record, and we saw many other significant impacts of climate change. So there was very low sea ice at the Arctic and also at the Antarctic. We saw some very intense heat waves, high temperatures, and very, very heavy precipitation as as well. One of the contributing factors to the very high global temperature and to some of the extreme events was the very powerful El Nino event. This is a naturally occurring climate phenomenon. It occurs every two to five years, and it has different impacts in different parts of the world. So, for instance, in southern Africa, the very bad drought that we saw in southern Africa was a typical impact of El Nino. El Nino also has the effect of increasing global temperatures, which is what we saw very much in in 2016. So it was a combination of the naturally occurring El Nino plus climate change from human activities and from greenhouse gas emissions. This report, does it uh, mean that uh, this situation is continuing looking at the 2017 situation? Yes, what we've seen so far in 2017 is that we're still seeing very high temperatures, maybe not quite as high as 2016. For instance, February, it was the second warmest February on record globally just after 2016. So we don't expect 2017 will be the hottest year on record. At this stage, we don't expect it. But we are still seeing you know, high temperatures and we are still seeing extreme weather and climate events. We can't attribute them all to climate change. You know, we do have natural climate variability. We do have naturally occurring extreme weather. But it's increasingly apparent that 
events such as heat waves, you know, they do bear a human footprint. It is human activities, greenhouse gas emissions, which are making extreme heat events more likely, for instance. Does it mean that carbon dioxide levels are increasing in our atmosphere? Yes. Unfortunately, carbon dioxide levels continue to increase. They set a new record in 2015. They rose further again in 2016. Partly this was because of the strong El Nino event, but the underlying cause is greenhouse gas emissions. There's a difference between carbon dioxide emissions, that's what we put into the atmosphere, and there's a difference between the emissions and the concentrations. So the concentrations are what remains in the atmosphere after you know plants have absorbed carbon dioxide, after oceans have absorbed carbon dioxide. And what we're seeing now, it's the concentrations are continuing to rise. Carbon dioxide has a very, very long lifetime, it's so it will remain in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And so that means that even if we do manage to reduce new net emissions, we still do have this very, very big accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that means that the planet is committed you know, to further warming in the future. Now, this entry into force of the Paris Agreement was the way forward with regards to the reduction of some of these greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, the Paris Climate Change Agreement, it's a very ambitious agreement. It's a very far-reaching agreement. It aims to keep temperature increases to less than 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial era. It's very ambitious. The World Meteorological Organization, you know, we welcome this agreement. It entered into force in record time. It's been signed by a record number of countries. The challenge now actually lies in implementing it. You know, it's a very good agreement on paper. We now really do need to to put it into practice and to to tackle those carbon dioxide emissions. What could be said about some other highlights that are with regards to the global temperatures? Looking at the oceans, for instance, uh, issues of precipitation, Arctic sea ice. Yes, in 2016, ocean temperatures were at record levels. Again, it was the combination of human-induced climate change and the El Nino event. Arctic sea ice was exceptionally low, both in March, when it typically reaches its maximum extent, and then again later on in the year, when it's meant from about sort of September, October onwards, Arctic sea ice, you know, it starts to recover from the summer melting season and it starts to refreeze. What we saw in October and November last year, that it wasn't refreezing. The temperatures in the Arctic were too high, the Arctic sea ice actually to refreeze. And even as we go into 2017, again, the sea ice extent in the Arctic, it's exceptionally low. And, you know, this is not a good sign, you know, for later on this year, we expect that... uh, there will be, you know, very, very reduced Arctic sea ice later on this year in the summer. Now, talking about precipitation, looking at southern Africa in particular, what could be said about that? Yes, precipitation in southern Africa was well below average at the start of 2016, and there was a very severe drought. This was 
because of the strong El Nino event, so that, that is a, it's a typical impact of El Nino is to have drought in southern Africa. And what was particularly damaging was that it was the second consecutive years. So there was low rainfall in 2015 and then again in 2016. And in parts of southern Africa, it was 20 to 60 percent below average, you know, for the summer rainy period. That's huge. So it had a very, very big humanitarian impact. You know, millions of people were affected just because the harvests were so poor. And it takes a long time to, to recover from that. You know, people who've lost their livestock, they've lost their livelihoods. It, it does take a very long time to, you know, for those people to recover. This situation, is it the same as it is in Southeast Asia, looking at areas like China, as well as uh, Latin America, Northeast Brazil? Yes, El Nino doesn't just affect Southern Africa. It has global impacts in different parts of the world. So Southeast Asia, we saw early in 2016, was also very, very dry. In the Amazon, provisional figures that we've got for the Amazon showed that 2016 was the driest on record for the Amazon basin. And there was also very bad drought in, in Northeast Brazil as well. That is the voice of Claire Nallis, who is the press officer at the World Meteorological Organization on the line from Geneva, talking to Wandele Kalipa. It's time for your economic news. In economics news uh, this hour, Egypt aims to raise 329 million U.S. dollars from the sale of its stakes in state companies in the 2017-2018 financial year as part of government efforts to generate revenue and attract investors. Egypt plans to offer shares in several public companies, mainly in the petroleum and financial sectors, on the stock exchange this year. The offerings will be its first since 2005 when the state sold shares in Telecoms Egypt. The Egyptian government owns a large number of companies in various industries as well as several banks, but its efforts efforts to privatize state holdings have proven politically sensitive. Ethiopia is expected to be the manufacturing capital of Africa in the next 10 years. The country has launched major initiatives to boost its industrial sector and has halved poverty from 50% to 23%. Amina Akram reports. Ethiopia, a country that struggled with poverty and high unemployment, is fast making strides. In the last 13 years, its economy has been growing by 10.3%. Its GDP is estimated to be at $70 billion. The country also has one of the world's lowest inequality levels between rich and poor. The rapid growth has led to a decline in the country's poverty levels. Its growth and transformational plans have helped stimulate the country's manufacturing, agriculture and hospitality industries. Delegates at the African Economic Platform in Mauritius will today debate the competitiveness of the African businesses. Yesterday, businesses called on leaders across the continent to create conducive climate for business. Sophie Mukwena reports from the capital of Mauritius, Port Louis. 
As the conference comes to an end, delegates will adopt resolutions on how to fast-track economic development in Africa. Challenges such as integration, free movement of goods and people are some of the issues they will have to find solutions to. Yesterday, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe rebuked big economies on the continent for dragging their feet in resolving the problem of free trade. Banco Centrale Populare, BCB, one of Morocco's three biggest lenders, reported a 5.3% rise in 2016 net profit boosted by its international subsidiaries. Net profit attributable to shareholders rose to $265 million. US dollars. The increase came despite higher risk provisions or funds set aside to cover potential future losses. BCP's net banking income rose 2% led by gains from sub-Saharan subsidiary Atlantic Business International. And Kenya will start selling a mobile phone-based government bond this week. In This is a culmination of a lengthy plan to tap a new pool of investors into government securities. Treasury says that the bond will go on sale on Thursday. Kenya pioneered the use of mobile money in 2007 with M-Pesa, a money transfer service by telecoms operator Safaricom. Known as M-Kiba, the new bond will be offered on M-Pesa and similar mobile phone financial services by other firms. Investors will be able to buy the bond through their phones where a record of their holdings will be stored. Coupon payments will also be made through the phone. M-Pesa allows users to transfer cash and make payments on even the most basic mobile phones. In partnership with local banks, Safaricom has since expanded the service to offer savings, lending and insurance products. Financial indicators, the dollar at 12.66, South African rands at 10.12, Botswana Pulen 9.57, Zambian Kwacha, also trading at 0.80 to the British pound and 0.93 against the euro. The commodities market, gold trading at $1,227, platinum $958 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $51.86 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. And it's time for sports news now. Good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto NETO Chemani. Starting off with football news. Newly elected Confederation of African Football CAF President Ahmad Ahmad stepped down as Vice President of the Madagascar Senate. Ahmad, who is also the Madagascar Football Federation MFF boss, tendered his resignation on Monday to vacate the office he has occupied since February 2016. The 57-year-old former AC Sotema coach was later received officially by the members of the MFF and Muslim community at Kelton Hotel in Antananarivo where he addressed the gathering. Ahmad was last week Thursday overwhelmingly voted as president of KEF, garnering 34 against 20 votes to bring to a humiliating halt Issa Hayato's 29-year rule. The African football analyst Kujo Amangwa says Ahmad's decision is to ensure he focuses on his role as the KEF president. 
This is an attempt to make sure that uh, he fully focused on the job at hand, which is the confederation of African football in terms of ensuring that African football is moved to the next level. Mr. Ahmad was the uh, uh, deputy president of the Senate of the government of Madagascar, and he stepped down gracefully after outgunning uh, incumbent Mr. Ita Hayatu on a 34 against 20, and for me, a significant step in the right direction because uh, he can only do so much. He cannot uh, pick so many uh, duties whilst he's now going to work full-time as the president of KEP. Bafana Bafana striker Kemit Arasma says he is happy to be back in the national team fold. And that is all that matters. The France-based player has donned his country's jersey in the two-all draw clash against Nigeria on the 19th of November 2014 in Uyo. He was replaced after 39 minutes. Erasmus is in Durban with the South African senior men's national team to face Guinea-Bissau in an international friendly match penciled in for Saturday at the Moses Mabira Stadium. The African football analyst Kujo Amangwa says the return of Erasmus and Kamuhelo Mokocho shows that South Africa is not short of talent. When the Gama have put together a very formidable squad, a very useful, a very competitive squad, because uh, most of the players from Europe uh, that were called into the team, particularly Mukocho and of course none either than uh, Kemet Erasmus, are key players. If you recall in the Under-20 World Cup in 2009, it was Kemet Erasmus who scored against Ghana until Ghana used their physical conditioning to beat uh, the then Under-20 2-1 in optional time. And from there, much have not been seen of uh, Kenneth Erasmus because of disagreement with the former coach, Mr. Sheikh Masawa. It's good for the national team to get their, some of their best teams that are applying their trade abroad to come into the national team to forge an alliance with the locally best teams in an attempt to make sure that uh, they, they compete effectively at the international level. For me, it's an indication of the fact that there's no short of talent in South Africa. This will be followed by another friendly meeting with Angola next Tuesday at the Buffalo City Stadium in East London. The matches kick off at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Central African time, respectively. The Ghanaian-born Amangwa says if the South African senior football men's team, Bafana Bafana, do well against Guinea-Bissau, there will be an indication of how they will play against their continental opponents in the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifiers Cape Verde in August due to similarities between the two sides. Guinea-Bissau, an island of about 250,000 people qualifying for their very first ever AFCON in uh, 2017 in Gabon, beating countries of the likes of uh, Kenya and Zambia and making sure that an established powerhouse like Zambia that won the AFCON in 2012 and Equatorial uh, Guinea-Gabon never made it to the tournament. And in the actual tournament proper, they accounted for the reason why host Gabon did not go to the second round. They drew 1-1 with Gabon, and they are not an easy team to meet. Bafama is playing them because in August they will be playing uh, Cape Verde. That is also very similar to uh, Guinea-Bissau because uh, they've got players all around uh, Portugal and France in the second and first division. So it's a very good preparation for Bafama to get themselves before in August they played that vital and crucial match against uh, Cape Verde in home and away. In athletics news, sprinters and hurdlers will lead the show tomorrow night at the fourth and final leg of the Asa Speed Series in Jimiston. As the build-up continues towards the major local and international track and field championships next month, the schedule for the Speed Series closure will include 110-meter and 100-meter hurdles races for men and women respectively, along with 100-meter sprints for men and women, and long jump and short put battles for men, allowing the nation's elite to prepare themselves for the Asa Senior 
Junior Championships in Pochevstrom on the 21st to the 22nd of April. In order to give athletes sufficient opportunities to prepare for the IAAF World Relays in Bahamas on April 22nd and 23rd, there will also be a lead 4x100 meters and 4x400 meter contest for men and women at the Jimiston meeting. The pre-program, packed with a full schedule for other disciplines, starts at 4.45 p.m. Central African time and the main program will get underway at 7 p.m. Central African time. Thank you for tuning to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. South Africa celebrates Human Rights Day. The World Meteorological Organization issues annual statement on the state of the global climate. The Rift of Africa Digest for myself as Pumelele Zondi, producer Luyanda Maome, technical producer Wazman Mangaile, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za on SMS plus 27796957930. Tweet us on Channel Africa One. From me, bye bye. Hello, family. We're going to do this one time and one time only. Hey, who would like to take Back to a place where you've never been before But you know what? You'll feel like you've been there Susan Bye.
true. I met her in Konya Nova, yeah, bitch, I got all I know. we made out in my to live happily ever after. Tapa maka abatu, these are lots of millions. All I tell you, I'm gonna hurt you so foolish. Wapala wanyana, ohana pala monwana, areke nadi katara neko bantu sete. Wapala wanyana, apala makara, ahula rakidi palaka musetana suze.